As some of you know, I spent a summer as a chaplain at the Washington Hospital Center. It was quite an experience, complete with midnight visits to the morgue and an eventual familiarity with all those codes they blast over the loudspeakers. But there's one moment that particularly stands out for me. A man had come into the emergency room on a hot summer night complaining of pain. I actually rarely went to the ER as a chaplain. Real traumas didn't end up there, and it was mostly a waiting area for people with immediate but relatively minor health issues and those without insurance who had no other place to go. This man, though, kept getting worse. By the time I arrived, he had died. The ER had some theories, but since the man hadn't seen a doctor in years, they couldn't be sure. I remember the family, raw and scared in their grief, asking the attending physician whether they should have an autopsy. And I'll never forget the doctor's answer. We can certainly do an autopsy, he said, if you'd like to. But I've found that usually autopsies don't answer the kinds of questions you really have tonight. That's what the chaplain is here for. He was right, actually. It was a little scary at the time. Providing clear answers about death is not exactly my specialty as a liberal religious clergy person. But in the end, it was my job. And although I didn't have certainty to offer them, I was able to sit with the family to help them begin the long work of processing their loss, to help them see them turn toward each other and toward their own faith for the support that they needed. That's work a chaplain can do, or a minister, or really anyone whose job is to be present and caring and faithful. It's not really work an autopsy can do, as the doctor that night knew. Now, before anyone starts taking out your pen to write a letter to me on your program about the importance of autopsies, let me just say that I agree. There are times when they provide exactly the answers that we need for our own understanding and for our family's future health. But there are different kinds of answers, and it's that difference that I'm interested in this morning. It's a difference, actually, that I think many of us are pretty comfortable with. Autopsies versus chaplains, or put more broadly and a little less morbidly, science versus religion. Uncomfortable bedfellows, so why make them share a bed? Those of us in the liberal religious family have often created a kind of uneasy peace between the two, provided each is contained in its own little sphere and doesn't try to overstep the bounds. Except, of course, for when we just decide that science is the more important one. Liber liberal religion and humanism in particular owes a great deal to the scientific spirit. We have a long history of religious scientists or scientific religionists, depending on your viewpoint. One of my favorites, and this is your historical trivia for the day, is Joseph Priestley, the 18th century chemist who discovered oxygen and whose lab and church were burned down for his heretical Unitarian views. 
In the early 20th century, as humanism began to flourish as a part of the religious conversation, many of its early proponents turned to the scientific method as the best way to make sense of the world. Religion, they thought, ought to be put to the same kind of scrutiny that natural laws were, leading many of them to decide that God was scientifically unprovable and to propose instead a philosophy based on reason and natural morality. In a time when science was a rapidly developing and exciting field, the early humanists struck a chord in America, offering a reasoned alternative to the religious establishment. And for many people, for many of us, that's still where we are. Religious folks believing in whatever they believe in because of faith or hope, and scientists believing in whatever they believe in because of rational arguments, well-run experiments, and logical hypotheses. When they're being polite with each other, the two fields simply answer different questions. Except when they don't, of course. Except when religion tries to answer scientific questions, as we see most frequently, in this country at least, around the teaching of evolution in our schools. I imagine most of you are familiar with the national debate that continues to rage on this issue. It would be difficult not to have a passing familiarity, thanks to our media, and with the general sense of division that exists between those who believe in evolution and think it's the only scientifically sound way to teach our children in public schools, and those who believe in a God-directed creation and want their truth presented in schools just the way the scientists present theirs. And then we have people like the Reverend Michael Dowd, a United Church of Christ minister and now practicing Unitarian Universalist, who's trying to bring the nation together on this. The author of the book, Thank God for Evolution. <laughs> Isn't that good? It's good. Dowd is on a mission to convince people that science and religion are actually great bedfellows. He presents in the book an understanding of evolution that he finds holy and sacred. The subtitle for Dowd's book is, so thank God for evolution, how the marriage of science and religion will transform your life and our world. And Dowd does bring quite a bit of zeal to his work. This book is the culmination of many years sharing what he calls the great story, an understanding of evolution itself, and evolution writ large, not just the monkey to man idea, but the stars and the atoms too, of evolution itself as having meaning. Dowd's version of evolution is not intelligent design. There's no clockmaker at work. It's a belief that the science of the world can be a kind of religion, that we can find direction in the very natural arc of the universe. In a 2006 article on Dowd, Amy Hassinger summarized his work in this way. The great story finds meaning in the universe by making science the basis of its religious worldview, rather than by molding the science to fit a preconceived religious perspective. In the great story, she says, science is theology. It is our newest revelation, our modern scripture." End quote. And then in Dowd's own words in the introduction to his book, Mainstream science reveals that evolution is not meaningless blind chance. Rather, biological life and human life evidence a trajectory, a holy direction. The idea here is not so far off from process theology, 
which sees God as a creative process more than an entity. Dowd is saying that the universe's evolution is that creative process. And while he's comfortable using the God word to describe it, his understanding of God is akin to what many humanists might simply call natural creative energy. Michael Dowd is married to another zealot for the great story, a science writer named Connie Barlow. Their belief that the great story has the capacity to bring together scientists and people of faith is demonstrated in the terms they use to refer to themselves. Hassinger, the article, uh, author of the article, wrote about it. Dowd has coined the term, okay, I'm going to try to say it really flat, creatheist, to describe both religious orientations within the movement. Here's the pronunciation. Dowd pronounces the word creatheist to refer to himself, a theist who knows that the whole of reality is creative and that humans are an expression of this divine process. And he calls Barlow, his wife, a creatheist, an atheist who knows the same thing." End quote. <laughs> it's a little cute, perhaps, although no cuter than the symbol that they've created, a symbol which inspired this platform's title a little Jesus fish kissing a little Darwin evolve fish with a heart floating up between them. <laughs> this is perhaps the possibility for science and religion that they can not just coexist but enrich each other. Certainly it seems like a better idea than only fighting with each other. As someone who considers herself both an advocate of scientific inquiry and a person of faith, I get pretty excited about the possibility that the two could come together. Indeed, for many of us, experiences of science or of the natural world as seen and understood through science have long been part of our spiritual lives. I've spoken here before about the naturalistic religious humanism of Bill Murray, former president of the Unitarian Universalist Seminary, Meadville Lombard, a humanism which finds its source of reverence in the natural world. Ethical culture's founder, Felix Adler, was known for his walks in the woods as well. And many of you have told me about the resonance, the awe that you find in nature. I find sacred moments both in the very present, the rustle of wind in the trees, and in the just beyond my understanding, the vastness of the universe, that mysterious dark matter that takes up so much of space and tickles the imagination. In a college astronomy class, I wrote a final paper on the cosmological constant, positing the possibility that the constant, which is essentially sort of cliff note story, a number that Einstein suggested in order to make the universe static, could be seen as a stand-in for grace or God or whatever mystery keeps us from expanding and shrinking forever. I was a religious studies major, you'll remember. <laughs> I'm not sure that my astronomy professor was particularly impressed, but it spoke to my truth, or rather my theory, which is more fun than truth anyway. Of course, all this reverence for science and openness to grace is only possible if we practice the kind of religion and the kind of science that want to get along with each other. A number of months ago, a video clip made the rounds of the West email exchange 
showing Sam Harris, a prominent atheist, debating science and religion with Deepak Chopra and others. The conversation was part of a presentation at Caltech titled, Does God Have a Future? The clip I saw begins with Harris chastising the other speakers for talking about God in too loose a sense, God as consciousness or as universal energy. If that's God, Harris says, then we can all believe in it. But that's not, he goes on, what most of our neighbors mean when they say God. They mean, and I'm paraphrasing from Harris's words here, a personal God who answers prayers and controls events. Harris goes on at some length talking about all the things that his neighbors, of whom I must say he doesn't seem particularly fond, mean when they say God, and admonishing his discussion partners at the debate to stick to that God, not some universal energy that anybody could believe in. I wasn't able to find any references from Harris about Michael Dowd, our great story preacher, but I can imagine that Harris wouldn't find his creative energy, his brand of religion, religious enough. Harris has a point. There are certainly religious perspectives that aren't interested in finding a sacred story of evolution or in seeing grace in the natural order. If we limit ourselves, though, to those perspectives, if we as evolutionists say those are the only religious ideas that count in this conversation, I wonder if we aren't as bad as those who hold very narrow views. Religion is evolving no pun intended, although welcomed. <laughs> and the idea of a universal energy or a movement of love is surely allowable, even if it's not traditional. Otherwise, the anti-fundamentalists are keeping fundamentalism alive just as well as the plain old fundamentalists. Well, the argument for a more open religious experience is familiar to us, I imagine, since we tend to find ourselves on the edge of it. But what about the argument for a more open scientific experience? Any hope we have of mating science and religion to produce something beautiful requires the participation of both parties. And frankly, science hasn't always wanted to be part of that equation. For a better science, I turned to Marilyn Robinson, Pulitzer Prize-winning author of fiction like the gorgeous novel Gilead, and nonfiction, like her most recent book, Absence of Mind. Robinson appeared on The Daily Show recently, and that clip is a great one if you want to see Jon Stewart, usually so well-researched, look a little lost. I can't blame Mr. Stewart. I would say I understand about 20% of what Robinson writes in her nonfiction. The rest of the time, I'm kind of hanging on, hoping it will become clearer one day, which makes her, I think, an apt writer about the outer reaches of science and religion, those fields of not quite knowing. In her latest work of nonfiction, Robinson takes on what she calls the parascientific view endemic to modernity, which claims all of truth for science and in so doing looks on any pre-scientific understanding of the world as necessarily wrong. I think what Robinson objects to most is the condescension she sees in modern writers. As she puts it, quote, the degree to which debunking is pursued as if it were an urgent crusade 
at whatever cost to the wealth of insight into human nature that might come from attending to the record humankind has left, and without regard for the probative standard scholarship as well as science should answer to, may well be the most remarkable feature of the modern period in intellectual history." End quote. Robinson fears that science, a relatively recent way of understanding the world, has become what she calls, after William James, the one thing needful, the way that we are supposed to see reality to the exclusion of all other possible interpretations. In her book, Robinson takes on Charles Darwin, Richard Dawkins, and Sigmund Freud, along with anyone else who posits a worldview that is singularly absorbing. Robinson is by no means against science. She is against, I think, what she sees as bad science, or perhaps the domination of a certain kind of science, and the resultant belief that our attempts to draw meaning otherwise are fruitless. To counter this possibility, Robinson draws heavily on William James, the great 19th century psychologist and philosopher and author of the varieties of religious experience. James and Robinson both see individual subjective reality as deeply important. One person's experience of meaning, of the sacred, of the universe. And it is that possibility of subjectivity, of openness to different experiences, that Robinson seems to call for most passionately. To the degree that theology has accommodated the parascientific worldview, Robinson writes, it has tended to forget the beauty and strangeness of the individual soul, that is, of the world as perceived in the course of a human life, of the mind as it exists in time. But the beauty and strangeness persist just the same. So we have Michael Dowd on one hand, who is trying to marry science and religion together into one incredible, all-encompassing story, and Marilyn Robinson on the other, who provides, I think, a warning to both science and religion to remember that they don't know everything. I searched in vain for some indication that Robinson has read Dowd and Dowd Robinson. They're different approaches. Dowd's written in an unabashedly popular format, complete with affirmations and quotable quotes, and Robinson's more scholarly approach, which is not exactly quotable. They're certainly not the final voices in this conversation either, just the voices that rose to the surface for me. There's another voice I often bring into platform addresses, and I want to give him just a little space here, although not take the mic for too long. Felix Adler, the founder of ethical culture, lived and wrote in the late 19th and early 20th century, a time of great advances in science and great optimism in its possibility. I came across an address Adler gave in 1894 on science and ethics, and I wanted to share a bit of what I learned. Unfortunately for Marilyn Robinson and her defense of subjectivity, Adler's favorite part of science, it seems, was what he called its quelling of subjectivism. <laughs> How important, he said, is the service which science renders us when it teaches us to take the objective attitude with respect to external phenomena where our feelings are not involved in order that we may thereafter learn to take it in the inner realm where our feelings are involved. 
Adler, who held a rather platonic understanding of the possibility of truth and good with a capital T and a capital G, must have resonated with the impulse toward surety he thought science could provide. But he cautions against an over-reliance on science for answers, seeking ultimate truth elsewhere. In its search for causes, he said, science never comes to a stop, and for the deepest problems of human destiny, it has no solution whatever to offer. Adler, not surprisingly, turns toward what he saw as a universal and natural ethical law. He says it is written in our hearts. For him, science and the scientific approach is a kind of training ground for the exactness we need to approach the great moral questions of life. So where do I come down in all of this? Adler, I think, was speaking from his time and with a certainty that I admire, a certainty we look for, I think, in our scientific and religious pursuits both. It's hard for me, though, to feel that certainty is always our goal. There's a certainty in Michael Dowd's work, too, in the possibility of synthesizing all that we know about our evolutionary history and what we search for in our meaning-making souls. Dowd presents his ideas almost as a new religion, and it has all the elements, a great story, a catchy symbol, and an inspired prophet in Dowd himself. But something draws me to Robinson's more temperate approach, her concern that in our fast forward to integrate science and religion, we may be losing what is best about each of them and losing our own experience, our own selves in the process. For Robinson, we must make sure to hold on to what she calls the mind, that particularly human ability to examine our experiences. In an article for Huffington Post this July, Robinson wrote, the debate is said to be between science and religion. Whatever the terms we use, we can still say that our civilization has been and is engaged in a controversy about the ultimate nature of reality. If we step back a little, she goes on, I think we should be able to put our wrangling factionalisms aside for a moment and see this as a profound and moving thing, a singularly human thing. To my mind, we are the heroes of creation if only because we think to pose such questions." End quote. I am enough of a philosopher to love questions. I love to turn things over in my head, and I am somewhat susceptible to agreeing with the most recent beautifully framed argument. <laughs> Robinson's caution against surety rings true for me, and it also sounds, frankly, realistic. What we think we know about science now may change dramatically in years to come, whereas what we experience, what we imagine and understand as our minds can grasp it, that we can trust for meaning, at least for ourselves. I still agree with that doctor's summation in the ER that night, that autopsies and chaplains, science and religion, answer different questions. What's important to me, I think, is that neither of them are too sure they know all the answers that both of them recognize the pretty great likelihood that part of what they put forward now as truth 
will later be claimed as falsehood. A little humility, I guess, would be nice. And then I'm greedy. For me, the best parts of science and religion both are the awe-inspiring, the imagination-tickling, the eye-opening. So I want both fields to help me to think more widely and more deeply about the nature of the world around me. I want to be inspired by the vastness of the world, both in mythical terms and as we have observed it to exist with telescopes and with microscopes. I love a good story, and I'll take it where I can get it. But we are all of us human, and so we know that what we really love are stories about us. Our children, who are studying science and reason as one of their themes this summer, have been reading a book called Our Family Tree, telling the story of evolution and connecting the whole world family to each of them. Both Michael Dowd and Marilyn Robinson highlight that connection. For Dowd, humans are at the center of that creative process that connects all of time and all of history together. For Robinson, it is humanity's ability to consider ourselves, to ask questions about who we are, that marks us with special responsibility for the world we are so clearly part of. There's one last similarity between science and religion that strikes me from time to time. Both of them cry out to us warnings about the beautiful world we might lose. Conservative religions, both Christian and otherwise, have for some time been calling for the end of time, the apocalypse to come. Be ready, they shout from street corners, stay vigilant. And liberal religious folks have long been shaking our heads, sure of our continued existence. Now we're the ones on street corners and at marches, armed with placards and sheets of data about melting ice caps and encroaching deserts. Suddenly, the fear of an end doesn't seem so unreasonable. Suddenly, the awareness of all that is precious becomes perhaps a little bittersweet. Some of the best work that's being done these days on the environmental disasters we face is created in partnership between scientists and evangelical Christians, both groups who know about preciousness and about the possibility of everything ending whether or not they agree on how it all started. And that's what we want, after all, to get some answers from science and some from religion, and to find that on occasion they can speak the same language. To believe that maybe sometimes, when it matters most, they can even turn toward each other and kiss, filling the air with the possibility of a universe of many dimensions, a universe with many meanings, a universe we can't entirely explain, but certainly know we love.